millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, July 15th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi sees a spike in COVID-19 cases. Then, Governor Reeves addresses policing in Jackson. Plus, the Enhanced Child Tax Credit Program kicks off. And a conversation with photographer Andrew Filer. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A little more than a month ago, Governor Reeves appeared on CNN to defend Mississippi's vaccination rate, which was then the lowest in the country. At the time, the COVID-19 case count in the state was relatively low. Broadly, it seemed as though Mississippi had the virus under control. The reason for that success, Reeves said, was simple. The fact is, for over a year, We tried to focus our goals on reducing hospitalizations, reducing the number of individuals in ICU beds. The goalpost was let's reduce the number of cases, and we've been successful at doing that. The question is why have we been successful at doing that? We've had a million Mississippians that have gotten the vaccine, but we've also had 320,000 Mississippians that have tested positive for the virus. Many people believe that somewhere between four and five times more people that have gotten the virus um, that have not tested have actually received have gotten the virus and so we've got somewhere probably between a million or so mississippians that have natural immunity and because of that there is very 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 little virus in our state natural immunity that according to reeves was the key to mississippi's low case count But now things have changed. Yesterday, the health department reported a one-day total of 641 new cases of coronavirus in the state. An uptick in hospitalizations is expected to follow. State health officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says that's partially because the now-dominant Delta variant of the virus doesn't play by the old rulebook. Immunity from previous infection does not really protect you from Delta strain. Um, We know that if you've had immunity from natural infection, you're at higher risk of getting Delta again than previous strains. We know that the illness may be more severe. I think that there's still data out there to figure out if that's really true. There is some information out of UK that says that may be the case, but we don't have definitive evidence of that. There is a mild decreased effectiveness of the vaccine. It still looks pretty strong in, in, the, in the mid to high 80s. So still very effective, but not quite as effective previously. We have a very low vaccination rate, especially in the younger age groups where transmission is increasingly occurring. 
so these are sort of like the convergent factors for this sort of perfect storm we're seeing right now. Since early rollout of the COVID vaccine, experts warned Mississippi's low inoculation rate left the state vulnerable to another major outbreak of the disease. For months, though, Mississippi's infection curve stayed flat. Now, as cases spike dramatically, it looks as though our luck may have run out. Dobbs says the surging Delta variant doesn't discriminate. If we look at the changes over time within age groups, uh, we are seeing an increased proportion of our cases in, in, in younger ages. It's doubled in the past couple of months in the zero to four-year-olds, and it's had a significant increase, about a 4% increase for our five to 17-year-olds. Still, our 25 to 39-year-old folks make up the most of the cases. And if we look at trends over time, you can see a massive increase in 25 to 39. We know these are folks who are a little bit more socially active in settings where you're more likely to catch coronavirus. You can also see a pretty a significant rise, again, in our 5 to 17s as total cases, and then our 0 to 4s are taking up an increasing proportion of our cases. What is also very, very concerning is the 65 and older group is, is increasing, and we know that's where a lot of the vulnerability are. About a quarter of the state of Mississippi who are 65 and older are not vaccinated, and it is a true and profound vulnerability. When we talk about the kids, we did release some information that was updated that there are seven children in ICUs with COVID and two of them are on mechanical ventilation or life support. Even though we know that most kids do fine with it, there is concern that the Delta variant is a little bit more severe, but also we know it's more contagious. At a press conference yesterday, Governor Reeves said he's taking the new outbreak seriously. There is no question that a majority of new cases that were reported today and that have been reported over the last week or so have been the Delta variant. It appears to be highly contagious, um, and, they're going, and there are potentially bad outcomes. Again, I w- and I will point out that some over 90% of those hospitalized uh, because of this uh, recent uptick are not vaccinated. Uh, of the new cases, over 90% are those amongst those who are not vaccinated. Again, I strongly encourage my fellow Mississippians to get vaccinated. It is the smart thing to do, in my opinion. It is the uh, path of least risk. Uh, given where we find ourselves today. I personally took the vaccine in January, and so I'm hopeful that more and more Mississippians uh, make that choice. Currently, about one-third of Mississippians are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Coming up, Governor Reeves expands state police presence in Jackson. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Amid a rise in homicides in Jackson, Governor Reeves signed two new pieces of legislation designed to expand the footprint of Mississippi state law enforcement. In his comments to the press, the governor acknowledged concern for public safety in the state's capital. Nothing is in direct response, uh, but let's let's just let's be honest with ourselves. The total number of homicides in the city of Jackson two years ago for the entire year was a little over 80. The total number of homicides in the city of Jackson year to date is about 80. And so we're on pace to double the number of homicides in the city over a two-year period. Um, That requires being addressed. And I'm hopeful that 
um, the, the city leadership, uh, the county leadership, and, and everyone, state leadership, federal leadership, and everyone in between recognizes this, and it's imperative that we do all that we can. And what I'm here to tell you is the state acting through our law enforcement agencies and the new powers in large part that we have been afforded through the legislative process, we're going to do our part to keep our people safe. Public Safety Commissioner Sean Tyndall joined the governor at a rollout event yesterday. He, too, says he believes the new legislation will help curb crime in Jackson. House Bill 974, which transferred the Capitol Police to the Department of Public Safety, and Senate Bill 2788, which allowed the Mississippi Highway Patrol to operate stationary radar within larger cities, gave us the greater opportunity to help the city of Jackson and our capital city by utilizing state assets and resources to help protect the citizens of the state of Mississippi and, in particular, those within the capital city. The legislation comes amidst long simmering tensions between the governor's office and the Jackson City government, which has bristled at prior instances of perceived state overreach. Tyndall says the new changes do grant state law enforcement the authority to exert a more active presence in day-to-day crime intervention. For example, someone who calls 911 or a confidential tip line from Capitol grounds could now be responded to by a state officer. They're getting a 911 dispatcher that can notify JPD, but they can also notify Capitol Police. Uh, that's why we also put the number out there for Crime Stoppers. Uh, Crime Stoppers has been notified that if they do get a call related to uh, something going on within the Capitol complex, to let the Capitol Police know and we would respond. Nonetheless, the governor says he retains faith in local law enforcement. We work very closely uh, with uh, the Jackson Police Department. We work closely with Heinz S.O., uh, and we will continue to work closely with them. But they are not under our jurisdiction, nor are they underneath our control. And so, um, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the commissioner has personally spoken with the mayor, uh, was reaching out to the um, chief and others uh, within the city. And so we're hopeful uh, that as we do more uh, within our jurisdiction, and again, our jurisdiction is limited. Uh, our jurisdiction is limited to... Uh, the Capitol Complex Improvement District for the Capitol Police, and it's limited to the state's uh, interstates and highways within the city limits. But I I will tell you, I don't think it's a very good idea to go drag racing down uh, a state highway anytime soon Um, because while you may have been able to get away with it three months ago, I don't think you're going to be able to get away with it going forward. In a written statement, Jackson Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba said a heightened police presence cannot fully address the city's struggles with crime. He urged the governor to increase funding for social programs aimed at so-called social determinants of crime, like poverty and mental illness. Coming up, the first enhanced child tax credit payments are on the way. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Today, the IRS begins rollout of enhanced child tax credit payments. 
Under the program, American parents beneath a certain income threshold will qualify for a fully refundable tax credit of $250 a month per dependent child between the ages of 6 and 17. Parents of children younger than 6 will get a little more. MPB's Ashley Norwood spoke with Fallon Sutton, who's a single mom of three in Jackson. My oldest son just turned 22, so he's not at home anymore. Well, he's in the Army. I have a 16-year-old and I have a 12-year-old, all boys. All boys, okay. Then based off of, you know, the, the number of kids you have in their ages, can you tell me how you qualify for the tax credits and also exactly what do you qualify for, like how much? Sure. I qualify for the 250 tax credit for the children that's between 6 and 16, I believe. So I will be getting approximately $500 a month with this tax credit. Can you talk to me about some of the challenges that you and your family uh, may have faced because of the pandemic? By being at home, my grocery bill went up, um, light bill, just a lot of the bills that usually were pretty affordable, they became, I'm not going to say unaffordable, but it became a task to manage more because, like I said, the grocery bill went up, and I'm a mother of boys, so boys really eat. And by them being at home, they ate more, and I had to provide more. So with that being said, COVID really did change a lot. It put us into a different perspective of how we should uh, ration out our food and just basically survival mode. So it, it changed. It made me grateful for a lot of things. But, you know, we, we pushed through it, and this new tax credit is really going to help us get back on the track that we were before COVID. And that actually leads into my next question, you know, like how, you know, immediately having these credits available will help you with monthly expenses? Well, it'll help me because I'm a cooker. I, I, I love to make sure that my children eat and eat a healthy meal. And by me getting this extra $500 a month, it'll help go on grocery bills. I won't have to try to um, rob people to pay Paul, if that makes sense. I won't have to try to not pay something or pay a little bit on something to be able to keep affordable groceries. Um, This will help me to do that. This will help me to also, um, my 12-year-old is in summer camp, so that's going to be extra money to help me pay for that, to really replenish what I've been spending as far as summer camp goes. But it's really going to be a big help to me. Um, I'm not sure about anybody else, but I know it's to me it's a blessing. So I'm I'm really glad about it. So it'll be monthly payments, right? And and Correct. and it, it you know we know it won't last forever. So do you have a plan in place for maybe how you want to make these funds last and, and best serve your family for the time that it will be available? Yes, ma'am. Well, my plan is to basically take I'm not gonna say half, but at least a third of it to be able to put in my savings. My mom always told me to put up for a rainy day. And this here, to me, is kind of like a rainy day fund. It'll help me to do extra things, but it also help me to be able to save for just in case this happens again. Um, it's money that I can put up to go towards emergencies. Because to me, the COVID was an emergency, and I had to tap into some savings that I had already to be able to sustain us. And like you say, you know, we really don't know how long this pandemic is going to last, right? So it's good to have a plan in place. Yes. And even though we are, we being me and my household, we are vaccinated. 
We still don't know, though. It's just a, it's a up-in-the-air type of thing. So we're just being prayerful that these the people will get vaccinated and that we can move on to get back to normalcy. Is there anything I didn't ask you, Fallon, that you think is important to add before I let you go? I hope people use this extra funds in the right way so that maybe the government or even the president will allow us to continue to do this because to me, this is a big help. I'd rather get this monthly to help me throughout the year than one big lump sum during my taxes because a lot of times, you know, when you get a lump sum, you're trying to catch up. So if you're trying to catch up, and you have to you get that one lump sum, it's gone with a blow in the wind. So I think this is very helpful. I'm glad that the president has decided to do this and I just hope that it that it helps parents like myself and others who really need this boost in income. Ms. Fallon Palmer of Jackson, we thank you so much for taking the time to share with us your story. Thank you. Coming up, a new project from photographer Andrew Filer. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. In the early 20th century, Sears executive Julius Rosenwald partnered with Booker T. Washington to build thousands of black schoolhouses across the American South. For generations, Rosenwald schools served as small-town pillars of culture and community before the Brown v. Board decision rendered most obsolete. About 10% of Rosenwald schools are still standing. Some are robust brick structures, apparently impervious to the passage of time. Most are modest clapboard huts, many near collapse. All are linked by shared intimate witness to childhood under Jim Crow. Andrew Filer is a photo- is a photographer from Georgia. His new collection traces the story of Rosenwald schools in hundreds of duotone images. Julius Rosenwald was born to Jewish immigrants who had fled religious persecution in Germany. He grows up in Springfield, Illinois, across the street from Abraham Lincoln's house. He rises to become the president of Sears Roebuck and Company, and he turns Sears into the world's largest retailer of its era. And he becomes one of the earliest and greatest philanthropists in American history. And his cause is what later becomes known as civil rights. Booker T. Washington, born into slavery, becomes an educator and is the founding principal of the historically black college in Alabama known as Tuskegee Institute. The two men meet in 1911. In 1912, they create this program that becomes known as Rosenwald Schools. And from 1912 to 1937, this program builds 4,978 schools across 15 program states, and the result is transformative. Of all the states that had Rosenwald schools, Mississippi had the second largest program in the South. There were 633 schools erected in Mississippi. Did you come to Mississippi for to take photos? Oh, yes. I went to actually all 15 program states. And there are I, I, there, the original 4,978 schools, about 500 survived. In over three and a half years, I drove 25,000 miles 
to all 15 program states. I shot 105 of the surviving schools, and two of the schools of Mississippi are in my book. One is the Poplar Hill School in Jefferson County, Mississippi, right outside of Natchez, and the other is the Bay Springs School in Forest County in Kelly Settlement, right outside of Hattiesburg. This is a book of photographs primarily, and vivid photographs. They're joyful in a way, and some are just so sad. You see one room just in a ruins, and a piano, a broken piano sitting in the center of the room, and others look like they've stood up pretty well. You said that 500 remain. Are any of them still used as schools? Most of these schools outgrew their use as educational facilities long ago. Many of them were one, two, three teacher uh, structures. Of the 105 schools that I visited, only five are still in use for educational purposes, and those tend to be the schools from the latter part of the program, which tended to be brick structures and larger, often one, two, and three-story buildings. But to your earlier point, this is a book of photography. I am a photographer. But I came across such extraordinary richness. I found schools that were connected to the Trail of Tears, the Tuskegee Syphilis Study, the litigation of Brown v. Board, the segregated beaches and murder and embezzlement. I felt so compelled to write those stories. They complement the images. And so this is actually... From an artistic standpoint, this is a hybrid body of work. It's a book of photography, but it's also a book of stories. And so I hope folks will spend time with these photographs, but I hope they'll also read the stories because I think they'll be moved. I think they'll be inspired. And I think they'll come away a little bit more optimistic about the possibility of change in America. You look at these photos and you, you think, oh, they're black and white, but they're more than that. From a photographic standpoint, the enemy... Black, in black and white photography is what's known as grayscale. Grayscale is kind of like saying everything is medium or average. And so in black and white photography, you try to shoot it in a way that the dark, the black tones have a variety and richness to them, but they are dark. And the lighter tones have a texture and a richness to them, but they are lighter. And so I've tried to do that in order to have these uh, images pop in a way. And, and you know, I knew from the outset this was an extraordinary story. The question was, how do you tell the story visually? And that was a challenge. I started shooting exteriors to tell the architectural narrative. But what I found is that that story was incomplete. And so I started venturing inside the buildings to tell this adaptive reuse narrative. Uh, the schools today are being used as community centers, as church halls. Some of them are private homes. Some of them are offices. Many of them remain unrestored. Once I started on the process of getting permission to come inside, I started to meet the people, former students, former teachers, preservationists, historians, and they become the emotional heart of the telling of this story. And so I bring their narratives into this story through portraiture. Andrew Filer is a photographer and essayist for A Better Life for Their Children. Julius Rosenwald, Booker T. Washington, and the 4,978 schools that changed America. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. 
don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.